I'm new there, then I, I just had to be part of that. I was lucky, Anna. I was very, very fortunate. I had great people around me, continued to have great people around me. I don't call it a job. It's just something I, I wake up and can't wait to get to. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom are the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts. They are relied upon from the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil. Clearcom brings seamless communication solutions to your stage. The Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. Today we're talking with Porrick Moyles. Born in Dublin, Porrick emigrated to New York when he was nine years old. At the age of 12, he starred as the principal actor in the off-Broadway production of Grandchild of Kings, directed by Harold Prince. Dancing under the tutelage of Donnie Golden, he joined Riverdance in 1997, going on to become dance captain and principal dancer. He was nominated for an Ovation Award for his leading role in the show. In 2006, he joined the Broadway production of The Pirate Queen as dance captain before returning to Riverdance in 2008. He has had the privilege to perform for a number of heads of state and notable individuals from around the world, including Michelle Obama and Queen Elizabeth II. Porek is also proud to be the executive producer director for the international show Heartbeat of Home, which has toured China, North America, and played for a six-week run in London's West End. He was also dance director and choreographer on Riverdance, the animated adventure. Porek, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Anna. Thanks for having me. So I, you dove into the uh, entertainment industry very at a very early age. Can you tell us how that how that happened? Yeah, I, I was actually um, I was at a fesh, which is something that is called an Irish dance competition. It's called a fesh, and I was in New York, and um, it was a, a team of people who were searching for a young guy with an Irish accent, and uh, they came up and they asked if I would be willing to audition for a show that was directed, as you mentioned in your intro. By no, none other than Hal Prince, who had directed Fat for the Opera and Showboat. Um, I went in for the audition. Hal had, had picked me there and then. He said, yep, this is the guy. Uh, and I hadn't a clue what I was doing. I'd never <laughs> acted before in my life. But uh, no better person than to learn the trade of acting and learn the, and understand the profession of theatre than learning from Hal Prince. And, and I remember him taking me under his wing and uh, teaching me um, everything that I needed to know. That's amazing. But you were already sort of a dancer, so you're you're already in the entertainment sort of field at an early age, correct? Yeah, and back then the, the Irish dancing um, side of things was very much competitive and not so much entertainment. But yes, used to being on stage and used to, let's say, dancing. Mm. And was that like a thriving scene in New York at the time? Because, you know, obviously you immigrated from, from Dublin first. Yeah, I'd immigrated from Dublin and as, as many people do when you move away, uh, from home, like you're in Hong Kong right now, your culture becomes that much more important to you or you, you try and connect with it that little bit more. For me and my family, my brothers and sisters, my parents ensured that we kind of stuck to our Irish roots, Irish music, Irish dancing, Irish sports, now that we were no longer in Ireland. So um, it was just one of those things that we did on the weekends and, and tried to keep, uh, I suppose, close to our roots. That's amazing. So do you remember the first day you stepped in on the Broadway stage at 12? Yeah, I do. I I, I remember um, being at rehearsals, actually, and I tell this story often about Hal Prince. Um, I remember being at rehearsals and uh, he was trying to teach me or, or tell me that I wasn't myself, that I was portraying a character. I, I had to become somebody else. Um, and he said, have you ever been to see a show? And I said, no. 
So he said, okay, you're going to meet me uh, to watch Phantom of the Opera uh, this Saturday. We went to see a matinee and he had the two seats in front of us vacant, the two seats either side of us vacant and the two seats behind us vacant. And uh, it was right under where the chandelier comes down on top of you. And I, I, I remember probably clearer later in life as, as, as I'm talking to you now than I did when I was 13 or 14. I remember him just talking me through each scene and getting an understanding of what the characters were su- supposed to be portraying, what they were telling, the story they were telling, what they were feeling. He was talking to me about the importance of the emotion that they had within the song, within the moments of silence. And then he took me backstage to meet the people. And he said, so these are the people, these are, these are the people in their everyday life. And what you watch them on stage was as a character. Do you see the difference? Um, and I, I began to understand then what it was that he was asking me to do. It was to get inside the character of what it was that he was asking me to play. What an experience. It was a masterclass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was incredible. <laughs> Nobody gets there on the personal front row seat to front of the opera <laughs> and a coaching session at the same time. <laughs> Epic. <laughs> I know. It was incredible. Yeah. It was incredible. What a gift. <laughs> and so what age did you join Riverdance? How old were you when you joined? I was, I was 18 when I joined Riverdance. Um, my dancing teacher, Donnie Golden, who played a, a pivotal part in, in my career, just in terms of helping me understand uh, the difference again between the art of Irish dancing and then the art of entertainment within the dance. And I think I, I credit him a lot as well as my parents of helping me find the passion and love for dance rather than the competitive side that, that Irish dancing often has. And we went to see Riverdance in Radio City Music Hall in 1997. Um, and I think that was March 1997. And I, I remember so clearly we were sitting house left and in those beautiful red velvet seats in Radio City Music Hall. And the, the music started, the first notes and the drone that plays underneath it. And I just remember the magic and the dry ice and the, the low fog that was sitting there and the dancers coming out in silhouette. And I knew there and then I, I just had to be part of that. And of course, then there's a lot of hard work that goes into that, Anna. And uh, the audition came up um, later that year in April. And I went to, I went up to Boston and I auditioned for it. And then I got a call in, in June that I was going to start in November. That's amazing. That's amazing. So correct me if I'm uh, right, uh, wrong. So most people know about Riverdance, but perhaps not the details of where it came. And, and I understand it came began as like a interval act at a Eurovision song contest. That's right, back in 1994, yeah? That's correct, yeah, you're right. The dance stems from traditional Irish dancing, but like how, how close is it to traditional techniques and, 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 and what did Riverdance do that's different than the, the traditional um, craft? So when, when Riverdance first started back in 1994 as the interval for the Eurovision Song Contest, as you mentioned, um, it was a woman named Moya Doherty. She was about 35, 36 years of age at the time. She worked for our national broadcasting station named RTE, and she was assigned with the role of producing the Eurovision. And every country that produces the Eurovision has to have an interval act. Um, and Moya wanted to show Irish dancing in a new way. She herself had Irish danced as a kid, and she didn't like the restrictions that were placed on you as an Irish dancer because it comes from a tradition, you know, that's centuries old where you keep your arms by your side and all those things. And she didn't enjoy that aspect of it, but she did enjoy the rhythm. She enjoyed the 
primal feel that it gives you, the earthiness, the groundedness it gives you, and the rhythm and the and the sound, but just didn't enjoy the restrictions. So herself and John McColgan, her husband and wife, uh, John is the director of Riverdance, they were both talking about how, how they might show it in a new light. And in order to show it in a new light, they wanted it performed to different music, not just the traditional Irish music to which they contacted Bill Whelan, who's our composer, and said, let's do this all together, which they did. And of course, then you had to find two stars, um, although they were probably weren't stars at the time, and that was Michael Flatley and Gene Butler, uh, both American-born dancers that John had worked with on a different show called Mayo 5000. And he saw them as kind of virtuosic in a way, uh, having Gene as having a real regal character and Michael being that kind of bigger-than-life character. And they thought, in Moya's mind, she thought that, that would bring something new to Irish dancing on, on a world stage, showing it, giving a little bit more freedom, using your arms, um, doing things that you don't typically do. And that was, in a way, the, the birth of Riverdance, which from the very beginning was a very collaborative and team-orientated um, project uh, with John, Moya, Bill. Michael wasn't the only choreographer, nor was Jean. We had a woman named Mavis Ascot that was in there as well. And the original troupe that went on stage, they played their their own pivotal part in that creative process, as everybody in theatre does. Mm. That's fascinating. And so originally you've had the, you know, the original sort of traditional dance that then kind of moved into mostly competition, right? So there was not a necessarily an artistic demonstration of that maybe culturally locally historically maybe in in Ireland but not not really on a global scale in any other sense right yeah that's correct I mean you you certainly weren't going to be making a career out of it um, or (laughs) or a lot of people wouldn't have had the opportunity to make a career out of it there were people I was I was dancing with bands like the Chieftains and Cherish the Ladies before I joined Riverdance um, and was Michael Flatley and Gene Butler and others, but it, w- it was very, very small. Riverdance is the one that put it on the kind of global map to be able to become a career and, and tour. And I remember when I first joined Anna, I remember thinking if we get a year out of this, we'll be lucky. <laughs> and it's gone for years and years. You know, I, I'm trying to remember before I started this interview where I saw Riverdance. And I've I've lived all around the globe and I have seen it at some point, but I can't for the life remember where I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, but I did see it. It was a beautiful show. Oh, thank you. <laughs> when when you saw that at um, Radio City for the first time, do you think that it resonated with you more because of your cultural background? Or do you think that you resonate towards that dance style because of that, because of your history? Or I mean, I know you've probably trained in other styles of dance as well, right? So... <laughs> I, I mainly focused on, on Irish dance, um, primarily because it takes up so much of your time that you don't have a chance to focus on, <laughs> on other styles of dance. But I, I'm not sure if it had anything to even do with the dance. Um, when I watched it in Radio City Musical, I, I just found that I was captivated uh, by the people on stage, um, by the essence of the show more than the story of the show. Um, I, I was just I was just mesmerized, uh, speechless. And of course, I suppose when you think about it, the fact that you know that art form or that you can do that art form must play a role. But in my mind, that wasn't playing a role. I I just needed to be a part of what I was watching on stage. Mm. Is it tough on the body? Yeah, yeah, it's it's really hard. Eight shows a week. Uh, we've been part of various studies with various different kind of universities and sport teams, and we have 
premiership teams talking to us about how we operate and what they can learn from us and we can learn from them rugby teams uh international um and it, it is fascinating and it is hard on the body the longer river dance has been around the longer the careers of the dancers are, are be- becoming evident that they can have longer careers from ice baths to the way they look after themselves just the professional ism that they're able to to display nowadays is far superior than when we first joined mm. You know, it's always interesting because, you know, unlike a typical sport where you're training for a day or a particular moment, performance is relentless, right? However many shows that you have to do each week and and get up there and give. I've, I've run a lot of operational shows in the circus world and in a similar way, acrobats have to maintain a certain level of stamina. And it's not like the Olympics, even though some of them come from the Olympics, you know, <laughs> it's it's a different, different mindset. And it um, it takes a lot of professional to take care of their body on the long term, I think, you know. No, you're right. And it's a, a huge amount of it, Anna, is mindset and discipline, a huge amount of it. Um, and, you know, it, it's very easy when you're doing the same show, even though it's it's never the same show, but when you're asked to do the same show, night in, night out, eight times a week, and yet you're asked to give 100%. It's very easy for complacency to set in if you don't have the right mindset or culture. Mm, Exactly. You have a most memorable show for you in performing Riverdance. Can you pick one? Yeah, I I suppose it would be the the first time I performed the principal role. I didn't tell my, my mom that I was actually even training. And my dad and myself decided we keep it a secret, Anna. She had um, sacrificed a lot, as most parents do, for, for their children. So it, it was in Portland, Oregon, where I, I first performed my uh, first role as, as principal. And we flew my mom out, as she thought she was just coming out to see a regular show. And, of course, I, I came out as the, as the principal, which was a, a huge opportunity for me to be able to surprise her um, and give a little bit back. And my dad played a big role in that as well. And I suppose then the, the another show that was massive for me was getting to perform on Radio City Musical as the lead. Again, kind of one of those full circle moments. Uh, and, and you never take that for granted. Um, it, it's just an extraordinary place. It's the, the mecca of performing. And it's, it's an extraordinary uh, opportunity for any artist to get to perform on that stage. So a big special moment for me. And that circle from watching it to being on the stage as the principal character, what what was the what was the time in that point? What how many years? Oh, um I I was in the I joined in November ninety seven and um I, I did my first principal performance in September of nineteen ninety nine. So about what's that, maybe fourteen, fifteen months. Yeah. Right. Almost two years. Yeah. 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 That's not. It's a fairly fast track into the the, the, pre, the <laughs> yeah. premier role. I was lucky, Anna. I was very, very fortunate. I had great people around me. Continue to have great people around me, and mm. um, uh, it's just such a supportive network of people in that show. Mm. So, tell us about Riverdance, the animated adventure. I, I looked it up, and it's. It, I mean, it's an animated thing. How, how did this come about, and what was your involvement? Yeah, that that was. Um, that was Moya again. Uh, she kind of had a, an idea of, you know, what else can Riverdance be? It, it's such a massive global brand. Um, and what else can it be? And, and they had uh, looked at creating something for the next generation. Uh, what could interest the next generation in Riverdance and what could bring Riverdance to two kids that were four, five, six, twelve. And an animated feature movie uh, sounded like a great project to be a part of. Um, it sounded like a terrific challenge and obviously it's a massive team of people that get to work on that. Dave Rosenbaum was the director of it. 
Uh, they had a great team in Cinesight um, who've done numerous animated adventure movies. Those guys have done uh, Secret Life of Pets and various other ones that my own kids watch. So my role was mainly around the dance in it, um, I, like all the motion capture, the choreography. Then I, I would have reviewed the storytelling. I'd be back and forth with the animators on, on how the actual technical dancer should be dancing within the animated movie and going through each of those steps. And then the whole process along the way, when every character was getting animated, they'd send it to us and we'd review it. And it was such a fascinating thing to be a part of. And then watching it all come to life from the very moment of the first sketches to where they actually make these things come to life is just extraordinary. And we picked some of the dancers to come in and, and we motion captured every single step that you see in that movie. Every single thing was done by a dancer and copied by an artist. So it, it was terrific. And it's it's on Netflix everywhere in the world except uh, China and Ireland and the UK. Ireland and the UK, it's on on Sky. Ah, I wonder if Hong Kong is in the capture of China or whether I can see it. I'll have to look it up. That might be a political matter. <laughs> <laughs> we might talk about that whether we're considered China or not. It depends on what website you go to. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I should uh, show my kids that I can tell them that I interviewed you and uh, we, we need to watch this because that's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's a great story. Yeah, and so when was that released? Um, that was released, uh, I think it was 2021, I think it was released. Yeah, but it, it, it sat at number two in the children's group for animated movies and Netflix for a considerable period of time, um, particularly in America, and it was top 10 around the world. So it, it's done well, and it, it's great to have an audience that are so young uh, become familiar with Riverdance and then hopefully be inspired to either pick up Irish dancing, try it. Um, and it's not just Irish dancing, there's flamenco dancing and, and kind of uh, Eastern European dancing and everything else in Riverdance. So um, it's just to inspire the next generation to to try the art form, any art form, any form of dance uh, and see if they at some stage either come and see the show live or who knows, maybe even be part of the show someday. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom is the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts, relied upon from the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil, bringing seamless communication solutions to your stage. You can find them at clearcom.com. Go check them out. So what are, you, what are you working on or involved in now? Are you still involved in performing in Riverdance at the moment or...? Uh, not not performing. I'm the executive producer and associate director with Riverdance and Heartbeat of Home, another show from the same producers as Riverdance, and um, a huge amount of other kind of projects that are going on as well. My life is uh, I'm I'm extremely fortunate to to live the life I I do because I don't go to work. Um, I do what I'm passionate about with an extraordinarily supportive team around me. And none more so than the likes of the owners of Riverdance in, in John McCoggan and Moya Doherty. Um, they are incredibly supportive. They encourage you to take risks. They encourage you to try and not worry about failure. Um, they are everything that you read in every motivational success book that you can imagine. Uh, anytime I, I, I go to read a self-help book, uh, I think I'm talking to the two of them because this is what they encourage all of us uh, and the culture within Riverdance to do. There's a huge amount going on within Riverdance. A huge amount of new projects coming up, um, and of course, we're we're currently booking tours into 2026. So uh, we have one tour in America right now, doing 24 weeks that started 
this is week number three and we have another tour starting in Europe in the middle of February so we'll have two tours out there running simultaneously and then we have another um, three month uh, stint here in Dublin starting in June and then more than likely as China begins to open up again there'll be tours that go down there and in 2025 we have various tours around the world as well and that brings us to what I was just mentioning where we're currently looking at 2026. So it is busy. We're lucky that it is busy because not everybody has had that opportunity coming out of the pandemic. And when you see, I mean, two weeks ago, there was up to 16 shows closing on Broadway. So it is extremely challenging in the entertainment world that we live in, in terms of live entertainment. So we are very, very fortunate and we count our blessings for that. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, it's held such resonance for a long time. Has it been through China before? I'm sure it has, right? Uh, Numerous times, numerous times. Riverdance was the first kind of uh, Western show to tour in China. And for for numerous reasons, Anna, I mean, there's no kind of language barrier with Riverdance. Um, the vast majority of it is through music, song and dance. So it, it's always worked well down there. And yeah, it, it's toured there pretty much solidly uh, from 2009 all the way up until when the pandemic hit in 2020. Mm. And I think, excuse me if I'm making assumptions, but I think like the show itself, the core of it is 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 the dance. So the the peripheral costs about the, you know the technology or the lighting or whatever can be scalable, right? So that's one of the the assets of the the production being able to fit in different theaters and then be able to be adapted quite because the core of the product is right there. It's the dance itself, right? Yeah, and um, one one of the key aspects to Riverdance has always been flexibility. Um, and we believe it's it's the people and the music and, as you mentioned, the dance, it's the talent on stage that delivers every night and everything else are the kind of bells and whistles. Um, and as you say, it, it is scalable. Uh, that said, you, you do try and pay attention and um, hold true to the design that has been there. But being around for the last 25 years, we, we just redesigned the show in 2020 for our 25th anniversary show. Uh, and with that, you you insert a, a level of flexibility uh, because you know all the regions that you're going to. Uh, and we've had a very good design team um, that were terrific in, in what they've created to give it a, a certain sense of uh, modernity. Uh, the, all the screens, uh, they're easy to get everywhere in the world now. Um, the lighting, you can pretty much pick that up anywhere in the world. So th- they were clever. We were clever on how we designed that. And two years went into that design so that we can deliver the same show in America as we're going to do in Japan or Australia or Dubai or China. Uh, and, and that kind of comes down to the attention to detail of the product and the brand. Mm, mm. And in terms of the standard and uh, cast size, what is the standard cast size? And then also of that cast, how many are from Ireland and how many are from international? Is there a percentage that are that are from every, or are they all from everywhere? Tell us. It's it's all over the world. It's um, it it really is incredible. There's there's pretty much a team depending on the region, anywhere from fifty two to fifty seven people on the road. You're looking at about thirty eight artists, thirty nine artists, and the rest of the the crew and the company management and the physios and the massage team. And yes, they they come from all over the world. I mean, we we refer to them as Irish dancers, but that's a style. It's not actually who they are. They're from Australia. They're from Mexico, North America, um, the United States, Canada, UK, Ireland, uh, Japan. We've had Israelis. We've had all over the world, uh, Moldova, Ukraine, Russia, 
Spain. Uh, the dancers just come from everywhere. So it really is a multicultural cast uh, that come together. And it, it's terrific to see. Mm. And that trajectory from from wherever they are uh, to being a part of river dance. I mean, what what is it? What does it take for somebody to pick up this dance style? Is uh, did a lot of those people do it in their youth and then they've turned pro, or is it somebody that I'm going to be in river dance? Let me learn this 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 choreography. What's the path? Yeah, that's it's um, it's it's an, an interesting path for for the Spanish dancers, uh, for Mago dancers that come through. They've pretty much been through a conservatory somewhere in, in Spain, um, whether it's Madrid or Barcelona or Granada or somewhere like that. And then, of course, you we have had a number of uh, Mago dancers in the past, and you build that network, and they go and host auditions, and you know you you look at what they're saying and. Uh, you try and pick the best person always. Um, and for the Irish dancers, it's something that they've always done or they've done for a long period of time. Most of them come through our academy. We set up a, a Riverdance uh, Summer School Academy, um, one held in North America and one held in, in, in Europe every year. Um, and people from around the world uh, come. There's usually about anywhere between uh, well, up to about 500 dancers attend that every year. Uh, so that that gives us a huge uh, stock in terms of what we're looking at, a pool of people. And the great thing about that, Anna, is you're not just auditioning somebody, you know, here's five minutes or here's two minutes. You're working them, with them for a week. So more than anything, we feel that that has opened us up to a, a better culture within the organization in terms of who you're hiring because you know them. They know you. It's harder to pull the wool over your eyes um, or, or fake it for a week than it is for a couple of seconds. And you're you're challenging them uh, with with different steps and different techniques and different um, things each day that really give you an understanding of their work ethic, give you an understanding of their values. And when they come in, they're typically more successful this way as well because they understand the culture, they understand the expectations, they understand the standards. And they understand that when they come in, it's it's part of their duty to raise the bar and uh, increase the um, positive cultural competitive environment that can happen in there so that we can continue in that pursuit of excellence so that the audience, no matter when they've seen it, that, you know, if you've seen it 15 times and then you come tonight, our mentality is tonight better be the best night that you've ever seen it. So um, there's various different ways that we select those dancers. It's the same with the Eastern European dancers and the musicians. So uh, it, it's a great process. It's a fun process. I enjoy that process because those decisions are hard, particularly when you're dealing with terrific performers and you only have one spot left. Even for the cast that are on the road, they know how, I suppose, how hard and how difficult the, the competition is out there to get in. Uh, one year, Anna, we saw... 989 dancers for once for two spots wow that's incredible i mean what a you know i mean first of all super smart to have that thorough vetting process like you said so you're not making a mistake of who you pick because you've got a whole week with them but then second to have that much from a pool of people to choose from wow <laughs> yeah and there, there's there's a, a lot of people in, including a, a couple of tv companies that are trying to talk to us about cr creating a a, a docu-series on, on that kind of process of coming in the week-long intensives the opportunity to come in what it's like when you do your first show then you start to travel and I think there's a couple of different uh, docu-series on Netflix that people compare it to. And then, of course, they think, but this would be so much better. So uh, we'll, we'll see how all that begins to play out as well. 
Oh, I'm a huge fan of that. I think one of the things about getting people out to live entertainment, especially post-pandemic when the, the nature of, you know, people's behaviour is shifting, there's many ways we have to play into, you know, the digital space for people to um, want to come to see these shows. And and one of the perfect things to do is to to tell that story. I mean, we all know being involved in the industry how fascinating that journey is from either for an individual performer or a creation of a show, how how much drama and, and fun and craziness happens behind the scenes and it's really time for us to lift the lid on that. You know, I think telling those stories creates empathy for those characters that make people want to go and, you know, see it. I, I couldn't agree more, Anna. Yeah, and you, you said it so well there. Yeah, so I, I, I hope that that happens because <laughs> I, I will be there watching it for sure. Um, <laughs> so as we finish up our podcast, we always ask the same two questions of our guests. So I'm going to throw them at you now and you can, uh, you can answer them for me. So what do you like most about your job or the industry? I suppose the, the thing I like most about my job is the fact that um, I, I don't call it a job. It's just something I, I wake up and can't wait to get to. Um, but I, I love um, our purpose within the show that every night is opening night. Every night is an opportunity to improve that mindset within our industry. I think it's, you know, it, it's something that might not be just unique to Riverdance. Um, but I do think that it's something that everybody in Riverdance believes. And I also love having the opportunity to... Um, affect people's lives. I think when they come to theatre and they buy that ticket and they sit in that seat and the curtain goes up, the show belongs to the artist then. And that's a huge sense of empowerment that those artists get to deliver that every night. And I think it's it's a privilege and an honour to have that pressure on you to go out there and perform and affect a person's life uh, in some way. As they sit in that seat, do you inspire them? Did you give them 100% of your talent and your ability on that night? And I love that challenge in our industry. And I love that element of my job uh, when I was a performer. And I love that element of my job in, in asking it of the performers now. Um, and we are fortunate, Anna. The, the performers that we have are extraordinary. And I, I just love so much the opportunity that I get. You know, they say, Anna, when you, when you get into management, the hardest thing is working with people. I couldn't disagree more when it comes to Riverdance. The best part is working with people. That's amazing. Did you have a, a this is kind of a side question, but I'm interested. Did you have a, uh, was it difficult for you to transition into that management and stop performing? Was, was that an emotional transition for you? Um, it still is. It still is difficult. Um, but I again, back to John McCoggan and Moya Doherty and uh, Julian Erskine uh, I, I, and the team I have around me today, um, uh, our marketing team, our social media team, our, our general management team and finance. You have great people around you that that transition is a little bit easier. Were there challenges along the way? Absolutely. Um, and the great thing is I, I wouldn't regret any of those challenges. The amount I learned from those, the mistakes that I've made, um, the roadblocks I came up against in that transition were the thing that I'm probably most proud of today in many ways. And now when I get to see those guys on, on stage, there's a certain sense of jealousy that I have. Um, yet that jealousy is filled with pride and happiness that they get to do what I once did and found so much joy in. 
Um, so now I get to stand at the back of the theater and uh, watch people living their dream. Uh, and that brings me a great sense of pride as well, even though my feet are still going under the seat or <laughs> at the back of the theater. Um, I, I, I just can't wait to get back up there, even though I know my, my day, it's not to be up there anymore. It's to let other people shine. Yeah, once a dancer, always a dancer, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) If you could change one thing about your job or the industry, what would that be? That's a great question. I I wouldn't change anything about my job other than continue to try and get better. I I, I don't know about you, and I I always feel like I, I should be able to do more. I should be able to achieve more. I should have more impact. Um, and what I guess what I'd be saying there is I, I wish if I could change anything that I had more of that in the past, that I was further along than I am today. But I suppose that's why we get up every day and go back to uh, do what we love. It's, it's an opportunity to improve. But uh, in terms of the industry, I just wish more people, especially at a young age, had an opportunity to experience theatre and the magic of live entertainment you know, I, I don't know what it would have been like for me if I didn't get that chance as a 12-year-old um, to, to find a passion and, and uh, do what every person has told you in your life to do something that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. So I'd love um, for even, I don't know, kids in, in every school to get the opportunity to go and see a show um, and to be inspired. And who knows if that gets a couple of them to maybe not get into the industry, Anna, but to bring their kids to, the, to a show when they have them. Uh, I think that'd be the one thing I'd love more than anything is to bring live theatre to people that don't have the opportunity to see it. You know, it's such a wonderful answer and we've never had that answer in the 150, over 150 uh, uh, podcasts that we've done, but I love it. And, and it makes me think of, you know, um, I came from a very, very small town in Australia and my father took me or my parents took me to a local production of Fiddler on the Roof and I must have said when I was 11, I want to do that, not knowing what that was. And my dad shipped me off at the very next local production and had me show up and uh, be a part of that. And that set a course for me to be my entire career being part of, of entertainment. Not that I was ever destined to be on stage, but um, all of the things that comes with, you know, a life in entertainment, which has been so fulfilling for me. And I, I 100% agree that, you know, it's why my kids do, you know, a theatre class here and, a, and get involved and they come and see shows. They they don't have to be in the industry, but it builds so much um, just to view the world artistically, you know, rather than just the other ways, you know, that, that can be done. I couldn't agree more, Anna. My, my, my uh, kids are in, in uh, stage school as well. And, and I honestly don't believe that that's because we have anything to do with theatre. It's because I understand the benefits of it. Um, and uh, at least introducing them to it, even if it's a case they don't like it, uh, allow them to commit to it for a small period of time or a certain period of time um, and and not to let them quit on it right away. Um, and I do think that education plays a massive role in all of that. Even for us in Riverdance, Anna, we set up um, a mentorship program that everybody in, in the show gets a mentor, the opportunity to opt into it. And that is a mentor from one of our alumni so they, they pick something like, you know, if you if you wanted to be in television, um, we typically have somebody that graduated or, or came out of our show that is in television somewhere. Uh, and we, we connect them. And it's a way of bringing the alumni back into the organization, as well as setting up a network for the new members of the company. Someday they won't be here. That That's inevitable. Um, but let's 
create a network so that when they transition out, like I did, that they have a, a, a step forward, um, you know, particularly if they know what it is that they might want to do. And in Riverdance, you have dancers on that stage that are physiotherapists, that are doctors, that are massage therapists, that are accountants, that are lawyers. Um, so we encourage all of them, depending on your skill set, artists, to to give a masterclass to each other so that you're inspiring them to look at different ways and different outlets um, that they might want to get into. Our, our sound monitor operators do it. Um, our production managers do it. Our directors do it. We had the director of the um, animated movie. They came in and gave a masterclass because it's all about just, it, it, it's about inspiring them to open their mind to what else is possible because you don't know what will trigger that. For, for me, for you, it was your dad bringing you to theater, that time for Fiddler on the Roof. And for me, it was, you know, going to an audition out of the blue and, and then Hal Prince taking me to Phantom of the Opera. So, you know, I, I think if we can reach out that way and try and inspire people that way, it doesn't mean that it's going to be for everybody, but at least you'll have learned what you don't like. You're still learning something. Um, and I think every day that we get the opportunity to learn is a, a successful day. Absolutely. Porik, what a pleasure to have met you today and speak with you at, on the Theatre Art Life podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for having me. Take care. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.